I make fast cars for very rich people. We're looking at things that will tell you if you are in danger from threats, missiles and that kind of stuff. I'm going to be joining Airbus Defence and Space as a robotic systems engineer. My role involves designing the electrical systems for large construction sites. I was doing it all uh, and I experienced it all. If you listen to those engineers and thought, I could do that, then you're in the right place. Welcome to I Could Do That, a podcast by Silver Fox and the IET, asking engineers what makes them tick. Hello and welcome to the I Could Do That podcast. I'm Alex. I'm the Head of Research and Development at Silver Fox. And alongside today, we have Andy Hughes. Yep. Hi, I'm Andy Hughes. I'm the Managing Director of AGH Engineering. We are a, an ENP design consultancy. The ENP stands for Electrification and Plant. We design and consult on anything electrical, um, power supplies over 185 volt in the railway up to HV um, and any mechanical systems. So we provide um, surveys, consultancy design for signaling power, lighting at stations, lighting at depots, power supplies at depots, anything that you can think of that is you would class as electrical and mechanical, then we design it for both for network rail and for their supply chain. So are you an electrical engineer? I am. I am an uh, electrical engineer. I went to the University of Birmingham and uh, studied electrical and electronic engineering. Um, and then I joined Railtrack on their graduate scheme, the company that then went on to become Network Rail. Uh, I joined Railtrack in 1999, where I um, had a couple of years moving around various departments, but mainly stuck with electrical and mechanical EMP. I've always had an interest in engineering, so from a very young age, um, and, and at the time you don't think, oh, I'm, I'm well into engineering me. It's like you, you're kind of interested in things and you look at it. And th- three things that I loved when I was growing up um, in Doncaster uh, was Lego, Scale Electric, and Sabutio. And I used to, uh, with the Lego, with Lego, I would try and build either a football ground so therefore, my Sabutio pitch um, had a had a stand, and I would try my best to replicate Bellevue, which was my hometown club, Doncaster Rovers. I would try to replicate that stand and or the away end, and I'd then rebuild it. Once my dad started getting me into electronics, um, and one Christmas I was bought a two hundred and one electronics kit, and that then started me getting interested in electronics, um, which was obviously the start of being involved in electrical. Um, engineering as in a way so I would then start to try and build my own floodlights or um, certain lights for things and then with the with the scale electric then I built a timer um, so when I was playing with it on my own and trying to work out the timing around the scale electric track then started to look at how to um, use the 201 electronic kit to do a timer which then that made it you could then play on your own get your mates around I remember having scale electrics. Me and my brother, he'll love this story. Mum and dad said, go to Toys R Us and go and get a scale electric car each. And it just so happened he picked a Mercedes touring car and I picked a a Porsche. Little did I know that the one he picked had a magnet in the bottom. The magnet traction. Yeah, yeah. It gripped the track like nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I did try a few things, adding some uh, blue tack to the bottom of it just to try and give it some more weight. Didn't work quite so well, but hey, hey. Well, I had Formula One cars, and the, my favourite one was a, a Ferrari uh, from 87, and that didn't have the magnet. 
And frankly, as a kid, I was gutted because the Ferrari, which I loved, went nowhere near as fast as the Williams round the corner. Always been interested in Formula 1. So from about 85, so I remember Nigel Mansell's tyre blowout in Adelaide, vividly watching that and being disappointed. Um, but the, the changes in technology in Formula 1, really from the mid-80s onward to the late 1990s, I was always interested in that as well. L- loved it. I've always wanted to, my company, to act like a Formula 1 company. That we, we, we want, uh, what we produce is is obviously it's of a very high quality it has to be to be able to perform and to obviously work there's a formula one um, car designer called john barnard who is a a bit of a hero of mine and i read his autobiography recently and in it he said that if something looks good it it's probably well on its way to being right i've had that ethos here with my company so if when we're doing a design if that drawing looks good and it's detailed and the report that goes alongside it looks good and it's detailed you know that that engineer's put a lot of effort in and it's already on its way to being right. Instead of it being, well, there you go, that's what you're going to get and you, you, you're cutting corners. And I was interested to read that one of his cars is actually in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And I thought that was amazing, that a Formula One car is in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And it shows how art and engineering, that there is a link. Making something that looks good to the eye, you, you know it looks right, is very, very important. Okay, right. I feel like we could be here for hours. Um, <laughs> not not because not of your long answers or anything. Just We could end up talking about F1 for hours. I did GCSE electronics, but I have also always had an interest in art or, or uh, specifically graphic design. Um, so for GCSE, I did electronics and graphic design. I then went to Doncaster Co- College and did electrical engineering and then went on to university. Um, when it came to then leaving university at the time, the careers fairs in and around 98, 99, a lot of the companies that were showing were management consultants. So these were the likes of Procter and Gamble, KPMG, Deloitte and Touche. And at that time, it seemed that everybody was going to be a consultant. Now I couldn't get my head around how you just left uni and became a consultant. Um, you needed a grounding in something. You needed to understand, obviously, how industry works, um, and then you become a consultant. But that's the that's the way that um, they were obviously taking people, what they called the milk round back then. Um, people finishing uni and then um, starting with consultancies. However, at a careers fair at the University of Birmingham, there was a, somebody in the year above me who, when I was then wandering around, he was on the rail track stand. And I'd seen other people from the uni from the year above, and they hadn't really given great feedback on the companies they were working for. However, a gentleman called Martin Jones, who's now the chief engineer at Network Rail, he shouted me over and said, oh, Andy, I'm glad I've seen you. I think you'd be perfect for this company, for rail track. And I said, why is that? He went, well, you get to be in the office, you get to go out to site, and he explained and just said, and it'd be right up your street. And I applied, and then I've been in the industry ever since. You mentioned uh, John Barnard's autobiography. What are three books you'd recommend? So the first book is called The Checklist Manifesto, and that's by an author called Atul Gawande. I've always kept copious logbooks, but one of the things that's always been useful is actually having a just a list of things to do. Now, when I saw this book, I thought, actually, I'm going to give this go. I think this could be quite interesting as to what someone else thinks about this. And it's as simple 
as having a list and, and but then what you do with it after that. So if you didn't achieve something on the list, are you going to readdress it or is there a better way of writing the list? And what the book does is it's got really good examples of how um, various companies such as Boeing, um, how they came up with checklists to make sure their production lines were correct and um, how they would then, if there was a problem, develop a checklist which they could then go through to make sure they, they won't have that problem again. Now, my company, when we do a design, we go through a heck of a lot of checking. So it go the design engineer checks the design itself, then it goes to a senior, and they literally look at it, blank canvas, show me what you've done. Uh, we had a checklist already, but what we did was after the book, we then developed that further, having learned from the book about how you can develop a checklist. Uh, so a simple checklist that you're going to take to Waitrose and do your shopping with, um, you can apply that across the board. And this book really was interesting as to how best to do that. The second book is by an author called Carol S. Dweck, and the book is called Mindset. And in any um, line of work, no matter what job you're doing, having a positive mindset and the right mindset when you're approaching a task this book sets out then the importance of it and how some what other things to think about with your mindset, turning issues into something that can be um, issues or negatives into positives, and then coming up with a plan for the future. Um, but basically going into each day and saying, what is my mindset today? And if you're not got a clear, good mindset, then it, it's important to then change that because you'll get a lot more out of the working day, your life, frankly. So Mindset is also a, a good book I would recommend. The final book is called Prisoners of Geography, and that's by an author called Tim Marshall. Prisoners of Geography sets out how basically each country has developed, what issues they've had with their geographical layout, um, whether they've got deep sea port, whether there is a flat plane um, into their capital, now, that's been quite interesting to read because then it gets you thinking about how the rail industry works and why London, the major hub, um, what impact getting railway lines is to there and from there. And obviously, we've got the HS2 being built, how economies work. So it does get you thinking. So although it's not specifically a business book, it is a real eye-opener as to, as to um, how countries have evolved because of their geography. Um, and it also gives you an eye-opener as to why some countries might appear paranoid or easier to control purely because of geography. That sounds interesting, actually, that, that last one. Yeah, it is, it is. I would highly recommend it. What is the biggest challenge the rail industry is facing today? The biggest challenge that we're facing uh, is going to be that we, we have enough competent staff to see us over the next couple of control periods and beyond. We've got quite a lot of people who are really coming to the end of their careers, the British Rail people. We need competent staff, and that's not just I've got a degree. It is the fact that you understand how the industry works, you understand your job position and standards, and generally very broad um, understanding as well, not just pigeonholed, I'm a specialist. Um, you need somebody, you need, we need people who can, write requirement documents thoroughly, correctly, so that they can be passed on the supply chain. 
Um, but really, it's getting competent staff in. And EMP, out of all the departments, is the one that um, the, the projected people, uh, number of retirees, and people leaving that sector. Um, that's the real focus for definitely Eastern Region that we need competent EMP staff. With that in mind, and, and making sure that my company's got competent staff, that's why I developed, first of all, the apprenticeship scheme. It was great that we got that accredited by the IET. We then followed on and um, actually have now developed our internal professional development scheme, which takes anybody from any age, so that's um, who we want them to go for, EngTech, then all the way through to Chartership. Um, and uh, we support people through, it's got internal seminars, external seminars, guest speakers, which is key, really, really important that people don't just listen to me every day. Or, you know, we've got people who come in and give seminars on their career. And really, we, we wanted to develop the scheme so that we're giving our younger staff the best chance possible to become competent. Um, and then throughout their career, they've had that really good grounding. We are working now with Network Rail. We're providing them support in their development of their own internal, the Eastern Region Apprenticeship Scheme. So a lot of the seminars and the route that we've got to be able to achieve chartship, then we're giving advice to them. And we've opened up if people would like to come to our seminars, feel free, because it works both ways. You, you You want the rest of the supply chain and your and our ultimate client to be competent. It's not just AGHE being competent. You need everybody else to be at a very good level. The NSAR, um, they've estimated that in within the rail industry, then we need between 7,000 and 12,000 additional workers each year, and that is staggering. Within the supply chain and at Network Rail, we, we need competent staff to be able to keep the railway running. And the railway is vital, vital for the success of the economy. And after the pandemic, there's never been a more important time to get this right. So what we can't do is rest on our laurels and say, oh, we'll be okay because we won't be. We need to invest in the development of young staff so that we've got a good railway for the future. There's thousands of engineering graduates coming out every year. How do you think employers and universities can interface better to make that final product more beneficial for industry? I, I think that the way that academia and industry, we need to work together to be able to show anybody in education, young young people all the way through, with what they're learning, how do you apply it in the real world? I vividly remember being in an exam at the University of Birmingham, and it was a maths exam, which to, to all intents and purposes, a degree in electrical and electronic engineering is a maths degree, it's applied maths. Um, and it came to the end of an answer, and I drew a graph. I remember sitting there thinking, why does anybody need to know that? And it was only when I first, only then started at, with Railtrack and then uh, working in design that then you can see that the likes of um, a Fourier transform or Laplace um, or matrices, how they are then used in the real world. I think if we gave academia uh, a su- support in that, and uh, we're working with the University of York now, um, offering year out placements but also um, we've been talking to them about us coming in and showing them what the rail industry does and how you apply that learning in the real world I think people would it would focus minds and you'd get a lot more people thinking oh if I get that now this next bit of maths or this next lecture starts to make more sense so that's something that we really need to do and unfortunately um, the pandemic has really also stifled people's understanding 
of what they're going to do with the degree. There's a couple of years now where people haven't been going to lectures and they've been sat in a room. And it's then even harder to think, what am I going to do with my degree? Because that mindset is that suddenly has become the norm. Probably academia and industry need to look and think, do we need to help the people who've got through university the last few years and went through that pandemic? Um, I interviewed somebody last week who said during the pandemic was the year that they were doing labs. And he said, I'd like to redo the year again. Even though he'd passed it, the young man said, I'd like to go back and do it because the interaction in the lab and listening to people's thoughts on what we're doing in that lab, we've not had. And I thought that was really good that he'd done that, that he'd taken that board because to, to, to suddenly say I'm going to have another year of my life at university with the cost as well, that's no mean feat. However, I think he's going to stand himself in very good stead. This podcast is produced by the IET and Silver Fox. Silver Fox proudly support engineers around the world with all their cable, wire and pipe labelling requirements. The Fox in a Box thermal printer has the ability to print a whole range of thermal labels with one software, one printer and one ribbon saving loads of time for engineers out in the field. For more information, please contact Silver Fox. Silver Fox.